Judge or Redeemer, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, the only podcast in the biz that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. If you're new and just now catching the Niebuhr fever, we welcome you with open arms to Niebuhr Nation. We have some pretty good episodes and we have some outstanding episodes, particularly our interviews. We love our interviews. Um, we've had some great ones. Be sure to check the pinned tweet on our Twitter page, at LoveThyNeighbor. And we've actually listed some of our favorite episodes for you to get started on. So uh, check that out. And like I said, welcome in. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as usual by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And today we're continuing on with our journey through Niebuhr's 1937 classic, Beyond Tragedy. And we've made it to chapter 13, which is called Two Parables About Judgment. Two Parables About Judgment. And instead of reading the scripture Niebuhr starts off with, like we normally do, catching you guys off guard here, how about we just tell the parables in our own words? Can you guys do this? So Aaron, you want to do the final judgment scene of Matthew 25? Just tell it like we're at, you know, round a campfire and tell us the story. And then, and then Zach, you do the laborers in the vineyard. So in the parable of the last judgment, you have the Son of Man, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God. And in his hands, he's holding on his right hand the sheep, in his left hand the goats. And these two things have a lot of symbolic energy. They're on the, his right hand, the sheep are those who followed him, um, who are counted among the righteous. And Jesus is pronouncing blessings to those saying that you shall inherit uh, uh, the kingdom of, uh, of my father. Whereas on the other hand, the, the, the goats uh, have not kept Christ's injunctions, his commandments, have not followed the law and are counted uh, as evildoers and maybe cast out into, uh, in this translation, using eternal fire and torment. Um but what makes the sheep distinguished is that they have, uh, as Jesus said, uh, treated the least of these as they would him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Like and the goats, him. they didn't treat the least of these yeah. like they were Jesus. So the measure of their righteousness was how they treated other people. And, and where does the judgment all end up? Where do the goats end up? Well, it might have where do they end up, Aaron? They say into everlasting punishment, but that's a really bad translation. And the righteous into life eternal. Okay, so one is condemnation, at least. Well, you know, Niebuhr's a good ethicist, but, you know. Hey, it's important to keep this end of the of the dialectic, right? Yeah. Uh, so we got the judge, the judge on one side, the condemning judge, where good and evil matter. You know, to make and, a distinction. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a difference. We need to make the difference, right? Uh, and then what's what's the other parable, Zach? Well, first I, I need to say, Aaron, I'm riveted. I'm moved by your rendition <laughs> of that of that story. Oh, I've tried um, to try my best. Yeah, I'm I'm 
I'm touched. The, the the next story comes from Matthew 20, 1 through 16. And basically it's the parable about the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard comes. He's like, hey, uh, I, I need you to work for me. And then he comes back to the market again. He says, hey, I, I need more people to work for me. And he kind of comes later and later in the day each time. And at the end of the day, he ends up paying everybody the same. And the, um, you know, the guys who started work early in the day in the, the first, the sixth hour of the day, they're like, you know, they're a little, they're a little pissed. They're a little angry, um, understandably, right. Or, or not understandably. I think that's, I guess that's the part of the story. Um, and the, the point being, right. He pays them equally. Um, and the point of it is right. That they all are being overpaid anyways. I think that's the underlying right point behind it. Um, is that they're all being overpaid, and so it doesn't really matter what time it's of the day. It's ultimately up to the judge, like yeah. up to the owner of the vineyard, what he pays. It's yeah. probably one of the better synoptic, I would say, one of the better synoptic grace-centered stories about the grace of God. Yeah, good. Which one is right? Well, I don't know. Aaron's rendition really has me convinced. Um, <laughs> well, I think the neighbor, both and. Right. Both they and. both serve a different vital emphasis on judgments and uh redemption yeah so uh i've divided this or he he divided this into four different sections i've taken the liberty as usual to name them here's the official love thy neighbor names for the sections the introduction i called two parables two theologies section one i've named biblical yet contrasting Part two, I have, there is a difference between good, the good, and the evil. There is a difference between the good and the evil. Part three, there is no difference between the good and the evil. And then part four, judge and redeemer. So let's go ahead and get started with the introduction. And this introduction, I, I call it two parables, two theologies. What is, what is he kind of getting at here, Zach? I mean, it's really just... The, he he draws a connection between like Paul the Pauline grace right the the grace that you find in Paul that um, we are saved by no works of our own um, and he you know he draws a couple different connections in here but so he takes that grace from Paul and he connects it kind of to some of the teachings of Jesus but he says it's you know he really points to Paul as kind of the main purveyor of it. And then points to this other parable, right, where he's talking about the the fact that, you know, what you do matters. Uh, there is significance. It has eternal significance. So he's saying both it has eternal significance, your works have eternal significance, and they don't have eternal significance. Yeah, precisely. I think um, if we put it in like a, a bit different language, I think what you're saying is that is completely right. Um, Niebuhr equates the second one you're referring to, the Pauline version of grace that we're all sinners in need of saving no matter what we do and no matter to what degree we do them either good or bad he calls that the augustinian uh mm -hmm. version but then the other one the other parable which i've read the parable of judgment it seems when neighbor kind of equates that with like a pelagianism where the the righteousness of the sheep is determined by the goodness of their works or the goodness of their deeds right their morality hmm. um so there is a distinction that Niebuhr draws um the question i think he's going to be answering is how does this make sense in terms of our experience we do see people who do good things and also very bad things uh but if we all just say we're all just really 
we're all just corrupted, evil individuals. Does that really do justice to the distinctions we mm-hmm. so readily make from ourselves? So in this first section, he's setting up this, um, what will become a dialectic where you have uh, two extremes and then we kind of have to find that spot in the middle, that tension between the two where we can hold them both as true at the same time. That's kind of what a dialectic is, is uh, two two extremes trying to hold on to both of them without letting the other one go, like without, you know, embracing one, letting the other one go. One of the points that I find really crucial is, um, is that he says the two distinctly, you know, two vastly different theologies will develop from these two different parables. Today, we might call it like the Arminian versus Calvinistic uh, way of viewing things. Uh, and as Zach was saying earlier, you have kind of the Paul and Christ dichotomy that a lot of people throw out there. Uh, and But he throws out that myth and says, no, you can find both strains in Paul. You can find both strains in Jesus. You can't make this clear distinction between the two. But it's basically this, um, the reason- on, the one hand, on the one hand, you have, there is a difference between right, good, doing good and doing evil. There is a difference. But from a certain perspective, even our best is still not good enough. And we're still all in need of grace. Well, actually, you know, this this is actually the reason I highlighted the the Pauline section, the part of it, was I think that there's actually quite a debate in like New Testament studies on this issue of Paul teaches grace, Jesus teaches works. Um, I've I've heard it many times. um, And so it's really interesting. I think the first time I ever read this, I was I was actually reading about that debate and and kind of being introduced to it. But I think like one of the things I would say just from the outset that I think we need to that I, I wonder about, you know, um, there's always like the the desire for like confirmation bias. Um, when you look at this, like, are these contradictory? Right? We have to really give that serious thought and really think about are these actually contradictory ideas that have just happened to come together in one document? And then we've tried to synthesize them in order to uh, satisfy the, um, mm-hmm. what, what's that word? What's the word? Cognitive dissonance. Dissonance. Yeah, dissonance. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, is this is this us trying to resolve our dissonance by using paradox? Or is this actually something that works? Um, and I think that's something Niebuhr actually addresses really well, you know, but that's I, I don't know. That's an excellent way of putting it. This is, yep. this is actually something that works on the ground. Through the dialectic, it's not just it's not just these contradictions that we find in scripture, but they are actually they run all throughout biblical wisdom and they are imperative. Both ends of the spectrum are imperative for a a good ethic. He says as much, basically, that before we even consider the outcome of the, the parables, we have to consider whether or not they match up to our experiences. I think it's really important, though, because I think that there's a sense in which it could be very damaging to people to kind of skip over this, what feels like a paradox, and to to recognize, like, I think Niebuhr actually talks about how this is actually resolved to some degree. Not completely, but there's a there's a working, meaningful way in which these two ideas come together. Yeah, I've heard it expressed before, work like, work like an Arminian, sleep like a Calvinist. Have you guys ever heard that before? <laughs> But that's not helpful, actually, because that doesn't really put them in conflict with one another, because that that is important to see them both at the same time. And we're going to get into why here in a second. So the first point that he makes, uh, so this is the first section, biblical yet contrasting. He wants to bring out that these are both rooted, not just in these parables. This isn't just a contradiction we find 
and two parables that Jesus happens to throw out there. But we actually see this contrasting, these contrasting ideas all throughout the biblical literature. He says, and he says that it's reflective of, quote, the two sides of the ultimate problem of human existence. So he's going to find like, he's going to find this dichotomy buried deep within who we are and kind of our contradictions and and how we understand ourselves. Well, I guess what's super interesting too is it's actually very seldom that I've heard a Old Testament, a, a well-argued Old Testament um, like survey or or biblical theology of grace and works together. Um, often I find them somewhat unconvincing, you know what I mean? But I think mm-hmm. he actually does a really good job of saying that, you know, in some ways Jesus is in the stream of thought here. You know what I mean? He's connected, he's attached to a stream of thought, you know, and maybe that's the new Paul the 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 new the new Paul uh, perspective, but that maybe it wasn't always workspace, but that there was always an element in which grace was a very key part of the the distinction. And to help our listeners out a little bit to understand kind of where he goes with this and, and discovering this in scripture, so he's basically going to say these are the two poles that he's going to have to he's going to try to affirm that on a surface level they seem like they're contradictory but actually necessary for us to live, for us to operate. So on the one hand, he says, it absolutely matters whether people are good or evil. It absolutely matters if people are loving or selfish. It absolutely matters if people are honest or dishonest. On the other hand, he says, quote, it makes no difference. No life can justify itself ultimately in the sight of God the evil and the good, and even the more and the less good are equally in need of the mercy of God. And so Niebuhr finds this contrast. He first goes to the Psalms, and then he goes to the prophets, and then he discovers both both of these contrasting poles, seemingly contrasting poles, and Paul, all have sinned, and yet uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and also on a theological level, level, he makes the argument that, you know, every small act really does matter in reality, as Jesus says, um, even unto the least of these, or uh, everyone who gives a, a cup of water to a child, like even our small acts matter. And yet ultimate reality is still dependent upon God alone. It's really hard to get our minds around both of these things being true. Yeah, no, and it's interesting that, you know, I'm glad he pulls Paul in here because I feel like sometimes people can read Paul and not grab that. They can they can almost come away with justification of faith and not recognize that he's actually holding kind of these two parables together. You know what I mean? Like he is holding these two ideas kind of in tension. Um, you know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is, you know, know that your labor is not in vain. Mm-hmm. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, it's just remembering that there is value to what you're doing. There is eternal value to it. One way to think about this as well is, is if you're hearing that there's this distinction, one could probably start thinking, well, is Niebuhr saying God is just some psychotic madman who can just start making decisions on whether to judge people or whether to redeem them? And I actually think what Niebuhr is doing is there's actually something mysterious that is is mm-hmm. both and all at the same time. Yeah, That judgment also is given in redemption. Mm-hmm. And redemption is also given in judgment. It's not one or the other. 
Yeah, and and it's important to state that's a mystery. And that's something that he concludes with in the final section is, you know, how do we hold God as judge and God as redeemer together at the same time? And yeah, it is mysterious. Aaron always running ahead, you know. He is always running ahead. I know. Part two, this is one I want to spend a little bit more time on. Niebuhr the Pragmatist. Okay. I think this this little section here is James all over it, where what is true is what works, <laughs> that idea, and kind of judging things by their fruits, that pragmatic, like really pragmatic uh, view of the world. This is where this comes out, where Niebuhr wants to, wants to make this absolutely clear. There is a difference between the good and the evil. There is a difference. No matter, like, let's put grace aside. Let's put judgment at the end of history aside. There is a difference between what is good and what is evil. And he starts off contrasting John Woolman, who was a Quaker saint who opposed, he calls him a Quaker saint, who opposed slavery. He contrasts him and a pious slave owner who justified slavery with scripture. You know, so you have uh, somebody who's a- actively owning. Sl- and we, we see this debate all the time about history in the church, you know, uh, people trying to make amends for or explain away Jonathan Edwards having slaves. It was Jonathan Edwards, right? Who had slaves? Probably. <laughs> or he was <laughs> or he was OK with it. Uh, and yeah, I just got I just got done reading about slavery in America and early <laughs> I did last night. I mean, I read like a hundred pages on it. So yes, whoever, whoever you're going to say, yes. Well, I think it's funny you read all that and you said they didn't get to slavery until chapter 13. Yeah, reading about Presbyterianism in America. And it was chapter 13 when we got to the issue of slavery in the 1800s. So, you know, they didn't talk about the 1600s or the 1700s. So. Yeah, well, there was this kind of willful ignorance throughout history. And Niebuhr says, no, there is a difference between, I think it's Wesley. I think Wesley was adamantly opposed to slavery. There's a difference between the righteousness of Wesley. We can't just say, oh, they're both sinners saved by grace. You know, there is a real difference between the slave owner and the abolitionists. Yeah. He also contrasts Nero and Marcus Aurelius, St. Jerome and St. Francis, And he says, and I quote, the difference between such men continues to affect the very texture of life in centuries after their existence. Well, and and what he's doing is quite fascinating because really, and I think every preacher should try to do this from the pulpit. This is like wisdom literature in the sense that what he's doing is he's, he, he is empirically communicating. He's saying, look, we've got this idea from the Bible and now let me show you where this comes up over and over again. And it's a subtle distinction, a very nuanced distinction, because a lot of people would say, okay, I can look at those examples and I can actually see like the the thread in in history that points to this thing that actually matters. You know what I mean? This thing that I, when I, when I see it, I'm like, yeah, that kind of does definitely matters. You know what I mean? Like, like there is a difference, you know, and there's something empirical about that. There's something that exists in history and time that we can recognize the significant difference between the two. Yeah, you brought it up before called a wisdom literature. Like it's he's not just like throwing out biblical dogmas or abstract doctrines or something like that. He's act Niebuhr's actually showing how this paradox, seem you know, superficial paradox is actually real on the ground. Okay. Um, and the first step in this, I and I called it pragmatism, 
But the first step in this is he's saying we can see a difference. There, there are sheeps and there are goats. Absolutely. You know, we see this throughout history and you cannot deny even that like, and he's basically saying we can't let eternal judgment, whatever happens with grace and all that, we can't let that swallow up our pronouncements now. You know, we have to be able to, to look at the brute facts, you know, and say when something is right or wrong and say when somebody is behaving rightly or wrongly, you know, um, because he says that this is this continues to affect the very texture of life in centuries after their existence. And that's absolutely true. Now, do you guys have any examples of this? Because we have a kind of a modern day example of what about a little bit, but I would actually say that it's really interesting thing that I thought of. I'm not sure. I'm going to try to pull it together here. I thought of like a black hole. Like we think like the, the idea is that all information goes into a black hole and it's destroyed. And then they come to find out that actually l- little bits of information are coming out in hawking radiation all the time. And it's like we can look at these, you know, different people in history and think, oh, like it, there's inevitably it's all destroyed right it all just kind of falls into one big pile and it, we don't really know who's good or bad you know what i mean ultimately everybody's just kind of a, a dirt bag but really what he's saying is that there is there is a fine there is a line that's coming out between from them you know there, there is, is something a, coming out it might look like in the the mud of history that everything is destroyed but the reality is there is a good there, there is a superior um outcome that is that that is coming out i don't know if that makes sense there's something really better it reminds me the way you put that of that general maybe it was roman general i'm not sure who there was a great big battle happening down in the valley and he told his uh archers to shoot down in the valley and kill everybody even his own men um and he said kill them all god will sort them out and that's kind of what we do with history a lot of times is yeah yeah, yeah and, and, he, and he's showing that like he's showing it by saying look like there's a fine little thing there's a little point in yeah. which if we look at these two things compared we can see it right if we if we look at them individually we don't necessarily see it but if we look at it together intuitively because you know Niebuhr's a real intuitive thinker he looks at it and he says look uh, you can look at these two and you know there's a difference you can't in deny his, the effects yeah this one person in history, in history, yeah. the fa- there's a fact there he's saying look there's a fact in history it's this it's this thing that we can look over and just say, oh, it's just, you know, he's like, no, no, there's there's a yeah. like I, I would draw a distinction between Biden and Trump. There you go. I think that I think that one is obviously uh, better than the other. I think one is a good man, you know, um, relatively, you know, like to to a degree. And we can already feel this tension you know, bringing up politics, we can already kind of feel this tension coming in because we want to hurry up then and say they're both evil. But when when it comes time to like vote and stuff like that, you have to make some decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what is better and what is worse, those types of decisions. Uh, And I I hear the what aboutism all the time of Bernie and Trump. Bernie's just a left-wing version of Trump or something like that. That's not true. You know, that's not true either. and the big whataboutism from the 1950s and 60s was U- U.S. and Russia, where the Russia would always have the whataboutism about you're just as evil as us. And you hear Trump using the same propaganda. Russia's just the United States has, has done just as many evil things as Russia. You know, we have to be able to parse that out, the good and the evil, yeah. you know, you, uh, and 
And it's not just because I'm from the United States that I'm saying this. Like there are real things you can point to that although the United States is tinged with sins of all varieties, it's difficult to say that we are the same as Russia. I think one yeah. really, and really I, I think example right now is George Santos um, and Kevin McCarthy. Like uh, the whataboutism that's always played is that, hey, I, so what? I lied about my resume, but, but everyone does it in Congress. So mm. who cares? You know, and that's kind of the, the, the argument that. Yeah, you should be able to tell the difference. Yeah, they should be pretty two. clear. We're going to say exactly. Well, and I, I think I think also, you know, this is a good this is a good thing to remember that this is a biblical idea that is upheld or, you know, that, that is put forward because there's I was just thinking about it. And in a lot of my experiences with people who are advocating for um, a, a politic that is there's a lot of subjectivism. That's a better way to say it. Yeah. You could be talking to somebody about, you know, one of these issues, like you just brought up the issue of the documents, right, between Biden and Trump could be a good example. Um, people that are followers of God, you know, Christians, I hear a lot of subjectivism in the way that they they, they don't want to really parse out the fact that there is a difference. You know, and you could go through like a litany of issues, right? Because obviously every candidate, every person that's in office has problems, but at the same time, you shouldn't let those problems keep you from seeing that there is a difference. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, what's really weird is that there's, I hear a lot of people like even, even about the media, they'll be like, well, you know, they lie about everything. It's like, yeah, they probably do lie about some stuff, but they're, they're not this news channel, right? There is a difference between the two of them, right? right there, right. one of them is better than the other. You know what I mean? They do both have biases, but that doesn't mean that the, the difference between the two has been swallowed up into nothingness. Right. It, and that's and that's the temptation for Christians is that we always have in our grab bag grace for all and we're all sinners. So we can always fall back on these being like everybody sins, everybody lies, everybody cheats, everybody's been there. So they're well, you know, or something like that. I could think of one. Right. You know, I can think of a situation where even like a personal standpoint, you know, somebody I know of a situation where a guy left his his wife and people are like, well, we just need to have grace for him. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you need to have grace for him. But you need to also kick him in the butt. Like you, know, you can look at him and recognize that you're just as sinful as he is, but you still need to act morally. You still need to say, Hey, you just walked out on your wife and kid. Yeah, there, yeah. there's a, there's a, you're, you are just like everybody else in the sense that you are a sin, sinner, just like everybody else. But that doesn't keep us from recognizing that this is a extra immoral action you know what i mean there's um, still a difference between the faithful husband and the unfaithful husband, or whatever yeah, you want to put that, it. that's a great that's a great way to put it there you know is I mean? a difference there, there is a difference you know and that and that is another example of it creates a texture of reality that long outlives the person that actually does it i mean mm -hmm. that will have effects you know yeah. generations later yeah you know yeah absolutely i i want to read this part because i thought that this was really compelling um and th this whole section is just, there is a difference. We need to call a spade a spade. There is a difference between these things. We have to live with these differences. And he says, truth is a, is a virtue and the lie is evil. There is a difference, right? There is a difference between men of integrity and deceivers. There is a difference between the honest scholar who devotes infinite patience to the task of separating the wheat from the chaff and the records of an age and the tendacious uh, propagandist who makes history lie in favor of his cause. 
My lie strikes my fellow man with blindness. It prevents him from seeing truly what he might what he might have seen through my eyes. Dishonesty destroys lives. There is a difference between the Manchester Guardian and the Rothermere Press, which, you know, I don't know. We could guess what that means in his time. Lying has been developed into a high art by the modern political propagandist. If the devil is a liar, Dr. Ge- Goebbels might find a, a place of great eminence in the devil's domain. We will never create even the most tentative world community if those who have become our eyes and ears in a technical technical civilization will not be more honest with us than they are now and tell us truly what they see and hear. So it's kind of a foreboding prediction about the future there, uh, about the technological age. But he's saying there is clearly a difference between uh, people who are striving to be honest like genuinely, and people who are clearly just peddling propaganda, mm-hmm. right? And I think this saves us from the the age of subjectivism, right? It's to recognize that there is like you know the nihilist or the fatalist could probably see this just the same, right? They they might understand and say that the the universe is meaningless, but yet they can also recognize what Niebuhr is doing here. They can look at the situation, and recognize there is something different between these two and the outcomes. You know, there is, even if it ends, right, there is still a difference between these two. And I think that's really, it saves us from subjectivism to some degree. Yeah. And then I think he gives like a shout out to confessing church in Germany at this time already, where he says that um, he he separates, he says, courage is a virtue and cowardice is evil. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a difference, he says, between the brave men who are fighting in Germany through these years. Remember, this is before World War II. Fighting in Germany through these years for the freedom of the Christian gospel and time-serving ecclesiasts who cravenly submit to the pretentious claims of ridiculous Caesars while justifying their capitulation with quotations from scripture, in parentheses, usually Romans 13. So he's saying those like Bonhoeffer and Barth who are out there, you know, fighting for the gospel in Nazi Germany. Uh, there's a difference between them and the people who fold up their religion into the Nazi schemes. That one feels just slightly familiar about how people normally read Romans 13 in the U.S. Slightly, yeah. Slightly. Well, if you notice, people oftentimes switch. They'll um, throw a blanket on that as soon as their guy gets out of office, right? Yeah. <laughs> then it's like, Romans 13, what's that? <laughs> but I think like the, the biggest thing that, you know, I, I was going to ask you this, Cliff, you know this. I haven't read Thomas Paine's uh, Common Sense, mm-hmm. but this seems really deeply rooted within, like, there is something universal common sense that we can all appeal to and just kind of know, you know, by by an act of intuition or just an appeal to just reason that there's a difference between, you know, the baddies and the goodies. Yeah, there is. Yeah, I can't speak a whole lot on Thomas Paine, but com- common sense, common sense realism, Thomas Paine, or Thomas Paine, uh, Thomas Reed, I think Scottish mm-hmm. or Enlightenment dude. Uh, yeah, there's a long tradition of this. And I, you could even throw pragmatism in there. Yeah. Realism. These are all kind of forms of it. Well, I think what he's doing, too, is he's appealing to something. It has to be common sense because, like, what he's appealing to is something that you can't reject. Like, you want to, like, look at it and go... 
you know, I, I, but I don't know how you would argue that there is a different that there's no difference between these people. You know yeah, what I, mean? I don't I mean, know. How, we, I don't know how you. I don't know how you combat that. You know, I'm sure there's somebody out there who wrote a real long paper on it. But uh, it reminds me of, of Eve kind of parsing what, or like the serpent kind of parsing what God actually says to Eve. You know, yeah. um, trying to find some some space there for interpretation. You know, um, so Niebuhr goes through kind of the gauntlet here, and he says there is a difference between truth and lies, courage and cowardice peacemakers and war makers there is a difference and self selfish and unselfish people okay and he's and he concludes this section with saying each moral act stands under an ultimate judgment in every moment of time genuine virtue is an act in obedience to god's will and thereby and thereby participates in god's creative purpose an evil act on the other hand is destructive the life which is destroyed by our heedless or greed or lust for power or our sensual passion may be restored by the grace of God. But from our perspective, the evil we have done is eternal. So we're, it's kind of like in this dialectic, he's kind of shifting perspectives here. So from our perspective, the evil that's caused here is long lasting. We might as well think of it as eternal in a way. Like um, we can't just and and I and I have down here. Oh, I I should read this the rest of this quote right here. Acts of restitution may may mitigate the evil, but they cannot completely efface its consequences. This emphasis upon the inexorable character of divine judgment is validated in every page of history and in every human experience. My mind goes to racism, that even though like. Like we try to make amends. I mean, we hear this all the time. That happened so long ago. You know, like what? How am I a racist? Still, we have to realize that these things w really happened, and they are still happening. Like they are. Like what happened in the past is still connected to what is happening now. And he's saying just a simple act of restitution may mitigate the evil, but it cannot completely get rid of its consequences. The consequences are still lingering. Oh, no, I don't know if lingering is even the right word. It's like, it, there's the there's the consequences, they're they're attached, but they're also like attached to like what we've done in history. He's trying to say that they're like, they're eternal. Like they're, they're just, they're beyond those consequences even. Yeah. Those consequences are maybe like, you know, the immediate reaction, but there's- Our, our sin in history outlives us. Yeah. yeah. So good. So there is a difference. And then part three is going to say the opposite. There is no difference between the good and the evil. What Where is he going to go here? Well, I think what we're referring to earlier in our conversation, that though there is like a common sense distinction between someone who does good things and bad things, it's just natural for us to make those distinctions. It's also natural for us when we look at like politicians, and we probably all hear this when we're arguing in politics or our family members, that they'll say, well, you know, all politicians are power corrupts everyone. We're all the same. At least and, he's honest, or they'll throw something out there. Yeah, at like, least they're he, all the same. So they're, they're still trying to make a distinction while they're trying to make the undistinction. Yeah, it's exactly. Kind of, it's kind of the funny argument, but, but uh, yeah, so there's just, there's something within all of us that even when we do not intend to do bad things or make poor judgments we still find ways ways of doing them mm -hmm. um it's it's not neighbor will go to say it's not a natural thing 
Um, it's not something that is attuned to our nature, but it's something that we, either our imaginations or our conscience or our spirit uses in order to accomplish those tasks that are kind of near and dear to us. Do you guys think that we should use oh. this kind of less as, we should never use this as a justification for our actions? People well, yeah. But it should always, but it, yeah. we shouldn't. Maybe this should be like a taboo thing. Like you shouldn't uh, use these whataboutisms. You shouldn't say that everybody's a sinner to justify your own actions. Yeah. But this should be used to temper your own pride. Yeah. It, because as soon as you think that you're righteous, that's when you need this ethic to kick in and to well, say you're a sinner in need of grace. I'd make a distinction that there that it's not saying that Niebuhr's not saying there's no difference between good and evil, but it, it's more just I think more specific. He says and it, it makes no difference whether men are good or evil in the sight of God because all because they are all in need of God's mercy. Yeah. Like there's a the distinction is about like it's not that he doesn't because care about good or evil. It's that we all end up needing his mercy anyways. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's in the because, in the conclusion. God kind of concludes both truths different ways. But I, th I think it's quite, you know, this might not be a very profound thing for us, but I think for a lot of people who go to church and stuff, this is a very hard thing to wrestle with. It is. Because even for people who are not experienced in church, or you'll hear people say, but I'm a good person. You know, and why, why mm -hmm. doesn't God, why will God judge me if I'm a good person? But then you'll also hear people like uh, there's a bunch of sinners in the hands of an angry God like mm -hmm. who just hates everyone. Mm -hmm. And how do you reconcile that? You know, sort of, you know, maybe God isn't hate, but, you know, you know, what I mean, yeah. So a big temptation, Niebuhr says, what's hard to acknowledge. And he calls this the Augustinian view. And when he calls it the Augustinian view, he's really just talking about the God gives us grace. We're all sinners. We're all I mean, you could use the language of depraved or whatever. Um, we're all sinners. Uh, the the vineyard worker, the laborers in the vineyard parable. He says the difficulty here, and it's kind of twofold. He says, one is you lose. It, it's hard to hold this stance without losing, quote, genuine moral distinctions. Because, And this is a lot of what we were just talking about, of we can't just shrug off evil acts as just or you know or you know maybe subtle distinctions um just because everybody's a sinner right and there's another temptation he says that could this could lead to kind of an indifference to moral striving is is the way that he puts it like why be moral if i'm just going to be saved by grace and i think that when we're all reading romans for the first time it's one of those things where we ask the question before paul's about to answer it you know, yeah. Uh, shall we keep sending so this, uh, so the grace may increase? Of course not. You know, and what's funny is a bit of a confession here, but I never found what Paul said after that all that convincing. Like, why not? I'll, I'm going to heaven. Why should I care about moral distinctions? And 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 why should I care about moral striving? There's something deeper here uh, at work. There is a dialectic here that runs all the way throughout Scripture that we we can't lose. You know, we can't just cling to one and ne completely neglect the other because you can't just cut, you know, these two parables out of Jesus, even though they're conflicting. Um, so what kind of ethic does that bring about? That's what you learn as you start adulting. 
right? Um, and that moral striving does indeed matter. It's not just about going to some, you know, amusement park in the sky. You know, it's about it, it's about actually living like Christ and bringing the kingdom here. I'm writing a book right now, and um, one of the things is, and this is kind of giving away the whole book here, but anyways, <clears throat> one of the things about what I, that I've learned from it is in my grandmother's family this is it's about her life and, and in her family some of them chose to strive to create a peaceful life even though they grew up in pure chaos and horrible situation and <clears throat> some of them chose to to not they didn't make those small decisions and what's super weird to see because she had a ton of siblings is that it makes a real difference generations later you know what i mean and that's just one, <clears throat> perhaps that's just a picture of the, the eternal difference. You know, I mean, a, a snapshot of what actually the eternal outcome of that is. But in the short term, there's definitely a, a very clear picture of what that is. Yeah. So he's, so regardless of these problems that can come about from Augustinianism, and he presents them at the top, he says the insights of this labors in the vineyard parable are extremely important. And here's a quote from him. He says, quote, every high type of righteousness is accompanied by its own characteristic sin. So the person who gains, he gives an example of the person who gains a reputation of virtue and generosity will be tempted to pride and to vanity. And then he quotes Pascal, uh, love this quote where Pascal says, few men speak, few men speak humbly of humility. That's uh, a great line. That even in our kind of quest to find humility, we still find a way to be prideful, you know? So we have to come in with the recognition that even our in our righteousness, we are still, still sinful to a degree. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this, Zach, because you've been reading up, up on some of the um, um, questionable behavior of John Calvin. Yeah. So Niebuhr compares... So in the, in the last section, he's quick to say there's a difference. There's a difference, obviously, between, you know, this this slave owner and this, you know, abolitionist. There's clearly a difference. But then here he says, Calvin and Hitler actually have a lot in common. <laughs> I was a little I was a little nervous when he started drawing a connection between Hitler and Calvin, not because I want to defend Calvin. Just Hitler was a really bad dude. Yeah, uh, and I almost wonder post Holocaust would have because this is written before the Holocaust would Niebuhr have drawn out this distinction? But the thing is, is like it's still in keeping. We well, I mean, but you know, Calvin's on. Calvin's a really fascinating person to choose because you know I just got done reading uh, Bruce. I don't remember his first name, but uh, he wrote a, a biography on Calvin, and I was it was very forthcoming about his you know because I mean obviously I knew some of his issues you know that he could be kind of you know, but I, I I was very struck by how just how vindictive he was. I mean, he made a dude walk through town with no pants on and a and a and just a torch and just a shirt, but no pants. Wow. You know, just to humiliate him because he had he had been a part of giving getting Calvin out of Geneva the first time. And then obviously Servetus is the most famous, but that's just one of many, 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 many examples. And and I think Niebuhr actually it, it's funny because Niebuhr uses Calvin a lot. He really draws upon Calvin. I think at a lot of his theology but he's very aware of his subtle sadism <clears throat> interesting um, but he's drawing this out that you know a lot of the good things about calvin are actually what made him have a greater capacity for evil in a lot of ways 
um, and traits that Hitler took a different direction. But, you know, and I just love the courage here of him like, draw, drawing this uh, comparison between Hitler and Calvin, which would be unthinkable for so many people. Yeah. yeah. Him, like Hitler's speaking of Hitler, as like the archetype of evil. Yeah. Of like nobody's no, on his level. Yeah. There was no evil didn't exist before Hitler. Like, ah, well, you know. Yeah. And I, like we were in the last section, we were just bashing the whataboutism of Russia and the United States. But I mean, this point goes hand in hand here. Like we have to remember. I mean, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine when I was an undergrad who's from Germany. And I was just, I don't know. I was being a jerk. And I, I don't know why, but I asked him, so what do you, uh, I've always been curious about this. I said, what did, what did they teach you, by the way, happened in Germany? And uh, his comeback to me was, well, what did they teach you about what you did to the Native Americans? <laughs> I was like, point taken. Point taken. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot but, of evil to go around. And I think actually this, this may have been <clears throat> this need for mercy. I'm just going to go ahead and maybe help Calvin out here a little bit. Perhaps... The difference between them is that Calvin was aware and Hitler was not aware of this, of that everyone is in need of God's grace. You know what I mean? There, I think there's a reason, there's a difference in the sense that there's a reason Calvin wanted to be buried in in a an unmarked grave so that no one knew where he was, no one knew where his body was. I think he was fully aware of his, um, I mean, not fully aware, but aware of the fact that he was a temporal, lowly creature, equally in need of the grace of God, just like everyone else. But I don't think that's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's literally the inventor of total depravity. So I'm expecting a comeback from Zach that, no, it's in the Bible. Uh, no, he invented it. I'm just joking. No, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I think actually what, don't you think though that what Niebuhr is using here is total depravity? Don't you think that's the. No, let's a, not get into that. There's, no, no, there's subtleties you, here. But don't you, but don't you think that that is what, Maybe this is actually a better rendition of what total depravity is. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Well, I, the only reason I stress that is because <clears throat> I would say that like the purpose of total depravity is not not necessarily to make you feel like an idiot all the time or feel shame ashamed of yourself all the time. I think the original intent of it is actually what Niebuhr is getting at here. That every striving, every time you think you you're going to exalt yourself above somebody else and be this more virtuous person. You need to be aware of the fact that you're equally in need still, even even though, yes, God does like for you to do good and you do good, you're still in need of God's mercy. Right. You know what I mean? I think I think that that's probably the better. And you can see it. the like if we're thinking like neighbor, you can also see the problems of coming about with that, which would lead to a lack of the ability to distinguish morally the lack of desire for moral striving because of. Because, uh, uh, like, accompanying this total depravity is this irresistible grace that uh, and perseverance of the saints that you can't you can't fall out of favor, you know. So there's kind of a catch to whatever angle that you well, go at it with. But there's a distinction that I think we've been stressing this whole time, and I think Aaron brought it up a couple uh, twice now. I think, and that is <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong, but and that is that there's a distinction between. It, I think like, for instance, you could take modern Calvinism and how it's lived out oftentimes. And and they would use this same idea that, that, that Niebuhr is using, but they would stress the 
subjective quality of it, the, how it creates a certain subjectivism. But really what Niebuhr is saying is it shouldn't create a subjectivism. It should create a humility. Interesting. You know, um, it should create a, oh, hey, like, yeah, you're you're really great. You've done a lot of good, but you, you still need mercy just like everyone else. Right. And then there's a there's a democratizing, a leveling of the playing field there. Um, but it's also courage as well. The courage yeah. to love, the courage to act. Yeah. And I think that's the, you're not just a complete piece of garbage. Yeah. And and there's the that's the Pelagian aspect, I guess. And even even in the Augustinian thing, that's not it's not the piece of garbage stuff that I think, you know, right would come out of the the Reformation, much as well anyway, but <laughs> I think it, when we're we talking about West again, we are redeemed sinners we're, we're, with gangster it, proclivities. That's right. Amen. Well when we talked about you know, total depravity there. You guys, you both were like, oh no, I don't want to go there. And like Aaron is like shaking his head, you know? Not, and and the, the the reality is, I think that that, that is, I, I think that what Niebuhr is doing with, with the doctrine of total depravity here, because I think that's what, where this comes from. I don't think that I, this is just, well, but our hangups, our hangups with total depravity would be the same as Niebuhr's. And Niebuhr would, Niebuhr actually does say that we sin inevitably, not necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. in our, nature to inevitably succumb just because of our construction but but we are not bound to sin that way so yeah no when i was sorry when i was using total depravity i was just meaning the i would i I was just i'm probably not using it correctly but i'm using it in terms of just like how i under you know just the easiest understanding of it and that would be that you're not getting out of this life without like like your sin is not something you're going to escape you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it, it is a part of the human experience and it, it and it has a way of corrupting even our most right. wonderful yeah. intentions. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not necessarily that it's our genetic makeup from Adam. So, and this is expressed all throughout this chapter. So he does it, this, this third section. So he does it with, um, there's a, a nefarious link between our own piety and our sin. He says that there's this whole thing about uh, we sin by omission. Mm-hmm. Um, we sin by n- not by by ignorance, basically by not um, uh, by not responding by not responding yeah. to things. Um, Peter he says uh, we may not do murder, but men perish because we are heedless of their welfare. So you, you're not sinning because of something you did, but because something you didn't do, something that you omitted. Um, Peter Singer has a famous analogy where he says, uh, if you saw a kid drowning in front of you you're likely to do something about it. And you would actually even say it's wrong if you do nothing. But he then comes back with, if you know right now the kids are dying of hunger around the world and do nothing, what's the difference? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a convicting analogy, you know? Uh, and, it, and really what Niebuhr's is doing here is he's saying how all pervasive sin actually is, how it's so difficult to get away from sin by commission or omission. And I think this is a really subtle addition of, I think, you know, having re- read through quite a bit of Niebuhr now, this is a very, this sin of omission, I think, is a really important part of his doctrine or his perspective of what sin is mm-hmm. and how, like you're saying, all all pervasive it is. Like, I think he's pl- like kind of laying out a little bit of his systematic theology, his a little bit of his, um, this is something that I guess subtly comes up in his writings all the time. You know what I mean? It's this. Um, Where normally he's kind of coy. You can kind of see a little bit how he has a structure backing this about how uh, pervasive sin is. 
yeah, he uses the sin of omission a lot, but he doesn't necessarily explicitly call it the sin of omission every every time you find right. it. It definitely comes up, and he definitely like he he pulls you in with it. Like when you might think, well, you know, maybe this is different than that. It's like no, there's there's this sin of omission also. It's a part of our experience. So we sin in our piety. We sin by omission, and the next one is even in the unconscious in our unconsciousness we sin and he brings up like and obviously this, these are things that he learned through his study uh through marx and freud um even though he disagrees with them in their construction of human nature he says that quote unconscious dishonesties which dog human action and corrupt human ideals even though the conscious mind is intent upon virtue so what kind of social theory of the Marx and the Marxians, uh, band name, uh, but also uh, Freud and the Freudians, you know, uh, who would be the headliner for Marx and the Marxians. But uh, but they have what they have uncovered is this layer, like deep layer of desires and urges with Marx as kind of like even the way that we think, even maintaining the status quo in a way, like we typically think of the status quo as a neutral arena, but Marx kind of laid that bare and said, even within the status quo, we find these these evils um, that we just by maintaining the structures, we are cooperating in the evil of them. So uh, and then there's consequence. Con there, then there is consequently no solution for the problem of life on the purely moral level, Niebuhr argues. If there is no assurance of a divine mercy, which not only creates but recreates in the wake of human destruction, the human enterprise remains purely tragic. So here he's just trying to say that even in our best efforts, even when we don't think we're doing anything, there's still sin involved there consciously unconsciously whatever i might like split hairs on what sin is aaron and i go around about like uh, the role of rationality and ignorance in sin augustine's argument in freedom freedom on the will freedom of the will whether and this is i don't think you reason the conclusion but it's just whether or not ignorance is the cause of sin or if sin is the cause of ignorance either have conflict both have complications if if ignorance leads to sin in terms of original sin, then we were created ignorantly to choose evil. What, yeah. We would inevitably choose evil. Uh, but if we sin and then that leads to ignorance, then we were created with the capacity to sin mm -hmm. or to be sinful or are sinful. And therefore we're conditioned in both ways to sin. Well, my guess is this is where he would probably establish the freedom of the will. Well, I mean, it's where Augustine, Augustine calls it an intermediary stage of where there's mm -hmm. neither or. And that's, uh, I guess that's kind of an of freedom that's unconditioned, um, but it has its complications. So last part, the tension. Okay, obviously we've gone over how these things contradict, uh, seemingly on a superficial level. We've gone through, as Zach put it, like how Niebuhr is taking these biblical concepts and making them real on the ground for us to see. There is a difference between a liar and a truth teller. There is a difference between uh, the, the humble and the prideful. There are real concrete differences and th their effects, their consequences are seen throughout history. But at the other end, 
on the other side, we, as we discussed, everybody's still sinners, you know, and so we are all dependent upon grace. But now he's going to try to find that tension uh, between the two through what I've named as the the last section, God, God, the judge and God, the redeemer. Uh, what did you guys take from this section? I mean, I think it's, <clears throat> he really beautifully ties together how the cross, how Jesus death on the cross is a consistent outcome of this right like like it, it, it it's in keeping with this idea it doesn't abandon this idea and just go one way the grace of god or one way just the works of god mm-hmm. but in, it in some ways holds those two things together you so on I mean? the one hand the cross is proof that sin has consequences this the sin of the people yelling uh crucify him the sin of pilate's indifference the sin of Judas's betrayal, these things find their consequence in Christ's death, clearly. But also it represents this beautiful paradox of that sin being dealt with uh, through the cross, through atonement, through forgiveness, you know. Uh, so, yeah, so I'll share this quote. The cross is the perfect revelation of both these truths. In it, the sin against man is revealed as the sin against God, as something more than a casual imperfection. In other words, he's saying it's real. Good and bad is real. Sin is real. Continuing, he says, yet in the merciful purpose of God to take human evil into himself and smother it there is also declared. But even in the cross, the relation of law and mercy remains a mystery. We do not know in what sense the evil which we do has eternal significance if we also believe that God overcomes evil. Here, Christian truth transcends human wisdom and speaks to us as the foolishness of God, which is wiser than the wisdom of men. So what he's getting at right here is that there's obviously the cross is this perfect symbol of this. And it's this perfect reality of these two things coming together. But he also is quick to say there's a mystery here we can't we can't completely resolve and that's important i think for niebuhr to set this in the realm of mystery because even in the cross and gosh i've tried understanding atonement so many times from so many angles it's like it's it's a really it's it's beastly i mean try like trying to just get beyond the simple reformation view of justification and trying to really get your arms around what paul is doing in romans and christ's fulfillment of israel you know and there's a lot of stuff in there trying to parse out um you kind of have to go with there's a mystery there there's some way that sin that we are still responsible for our sins but yet somehow grace still overcomes us somehow you know so I think that I'll go ahead and just conclude with the final paragraph where he says, love is both the fulfillment and the negation of law. Forgiveness is the highest justice and the end of justice. The judge of the parable of the last judgment is inexorable. He consigns men to hell for the evil they have done. The householder of the parable of the vineyard specifically rejects the calculations of justice. This judge and this householder are both symbols of God, of the God who is at once judge and redeemer. So something that I often go on about is the importance of keeping these two in tension with one another. What I fear with something like universalism, or I'm sorry, or on the one hand, or on the other hand, this vindictive God that we see from the fundies, um, is you lose one. 
you know, I'm afraid of losing one of these things. So I'm wondering like how much of these, I guess, historical doctrines are appropriate for maintaining God as judge and God as redeemer. Any comment? We don't have any time to get into it today. Okay, no, no time to get into it today. Any last words, Zach? No, I All agree right. with you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. Make sure you like and subscribe. Write us a good review. That really helps the show. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there.